0: If you're interested in reading commentary on what are the real transport needs, what are the best transport solutions, and how they will shape the way we go about our activities in our cities, and may I suggest reading Dr. Alan Davies' writings, which you can find at crikey.com.au, and look for the feature called The Urbanist. I find it so refreshing to read thoughtful comment that is not strident, one-dimensional, self-serving, or, as is often the case, only written to support a preconceived idea. It is not only clever, it's expansive. There's no one simple solution, and above all, we need to understand what a community needs out of a transport system, not just how we must build the sort of transport networks that we like. It's my pleasure to have Alan on the line now. Alan, thank you very much for your time.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: I've read your material for a long time. Uh, it was only when we were chasing up that I realised uh, that we once worked for the same organisation, but at different times. You've worked uh, in this case for the study group in New South Wales and for Treasury and other departments.
1: I've worked for the State Transport Study Group. I started my career working in um, in transport planning um, and modelling, and but most of my time has been spent in policy work, often on transport, but mostly on industry development. And these days I'm I'm back discussing um, through. The urbanist issues of transport, uh, architecture, planning, um, you name it, anything really to do with cities, I'll, uh, I'll have a look at and see if I can add some value to the discussion.
0: I think that's lovely that we actually have a broad view of that. It's not just focused on train bogies and, and other things. In fact, we seem to often get fixated with a mode of transport rather than the needs of the city. I offended. Some people in the tram lobby once, when I said, they tended to have a bit of the attitude of the answer's a tram. Now, what's the question? We need to actually look at what the real needs are, don't we?
1: We do. We need to look at the problem. So, if you've got a, um, you know, like a highly disaggregated, decentralised set of origins and destinations, well, something small and very flexible like a bus might be might be the appropriate solution. But when you get to a certain a uh, level of demand and you need a lot of capacity, then perhaps light rail is justified on operational grounds. And then, you know, in due course, um, if there's a lot of very large numbers of people wanting to go from the same uh, or to the same place, usually from the same place, like from a, an airport to a city centre, rail might be the solution. But, uh, yes, you've got to look at the problem and the um, the kind of a technology should be the end product, the dependent variable, not the, it shouldn't be at the front end.
0: You talked about the generous task. We we tend to focus all on trips to the CBD and th- therefore we t- often end up with one or two very big projects while the rest of the area often gets left out.
1: Well, yeah, that's really important because, um, you know, people, I think, they look at this city metropolitan area and they see this huge um, bundle of high-rise buildings in the city centre and they're thinking, well, that's where all the jobs are. That's where I work. That's where all the high-rise buildings are. But cities like Sydney and Melbourne have only got 10% of jobs in the main traditional CBD put in a few little additional areas like in Melbourne you've got Docklands and Place and, um, South Bank you're only up to 15% of jobs most jobs are not in the in the city centre where the rail lines all converge,
0: and we get focused almost on the capacity in a fixed corridor in one direction, as though that's going to solve the whole thing. The other thing is, of course, we, we that's one of the myths. You've just wrote a bit lovely article uh, about uh, a myth in Melbourne about the size of Melbourne. It was quoted in the Age newspaper that Melbourne is five times the size of London. Is it?
1: No. <laughs> I think I know the article we're referring to. No, no, no. Of course, um, it's not that uh, people overlook the fact, um, whether deliberately or just by uh, ignorance, that um, uh, while London has eight million people within you know the traditional London area, the green belt, it's done what every city in history has done. It um, it's grown outwards, and um, there's another four or five million people all in the outlying areas commuting in from you know the outer Surrey and places like that. So. Uh, and when you look at the, um, when you actually map the distribution of population, you see that uh, London's de- certainly denser than Melbourne, and uh, it's got many more people in the same area, but their footprint is pretty much the same, their footprint on the land.
0: The trouble is, of course, we make a myth, and then we make wild conclusions based on that myth, rather than really understanding the need.
1: We do, and it's a vexed question, is how the heck can we get people to, um, in such a kind of politicized atmosphere, which is the way so much of our public discourse happens, to think about, well, let's proceed from the facts. It seems uh, it's much easier to proceed from a position uh, and then fit the facts to the, to, to the outcome you want. I mean, I often think that uh, things do seem to be awfully politicized. Universities, uh, it's almost a, an embarrassment if you're an academic this day, this, in this day and age and you're not an advocate. It's almost as if you're doing the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of transport people claim they're researchers, but what I think they really are are lobbyists. Oh, yes. They have a particular mode that they love, and so everything becomes to suit that end. And if I were to say I didn't like that, a, you know rail proposal. It's not to say I'm anti-rail. It's just to say I don't like that proposal. But I'm seen almost as the heathen who who is anti-public transport.
1: Well, that's right. That that's that's the politicisation and um, people. Be, you know, the, the, the debate it becomes a debate. It becomes about being in opposing camps uh, rather than um, some kind of traditional or old-fashioned idea, I suppose, about seeking the truth.
0: <laughs> Indeed, you wrote an article. What the hell is a bloody metro anyway? <laughs> I love that point uh, a metro in uh, there's one in London and Paris and Madrid, we all know that and they're wonderful why can't we immediately put one into Sydney cities?
1: The problem was, I mean I used the Paris metro as, as the example and um, people I think go, they visit these things as tourists it's not a good way really to visit it because you've got plenty of time on your hands unlike a resident who's rushed and um, they think oh If public transport back home was as good as it is in Paris, I could easily do without my car. You know, it sounds great. Problem is, trying to get public transport like the Paris Metro into Australian cities is very hard because you've got it's this concept of path dependency that economists talk about. That is, you've got the legacy of a car-oriented city. You just can't create a city brand new. You've already got all those suburbs. You've already got that expensive land that uh, can't be developed. You've already got all those neighbours who oppose development and so on. So the Paris metro, which is inside, inside the ring road, the per- periphery, that's uh, a radius of about five kilometres. So that's not getting you very far in Melbourne. It's just getting you out in the north, say, to Clifton Hill. In Sydney, five kilometres, what, very small area right now, in Paris, well, I think it's got hundreds, hundreds of railway stations in that very small area, and it's got—I do remember—it's got 62 interchange stations. And in the same area, Melbourne, for example, has only got 28 railway stations. Paris has got 2.2 million people living in those very dense, six-story buildings in that five-kilometer radius. In Melbourne, it's only about 300,000. So. I mean what happens in Paris is the great majority of trips the biggest mode is walking something like sixty percent then you come down to about uh, you know twenty five to thirty percent by public transport and cars about ten percent if you're here for if you're here or there for for cycling but when you've got a uh, a city that's so dense, you've got the demand you've got the, the can warrant having such a dense public transport system and having trains that are running every one or ten minutes and where you can get to a station, jump out, run across to the next platform. You've only got to wait 60 seconds and you're into the next train.
0: Yeah, they say we've got uh, systems in Sydney and Melbourne, for example, that uh, a train system is an inter-urban, an intra-urban, but it's not a metro. It's not getting down to that short, sharp, in a very confined area. Now, to build it now would be prohibitively expensive. Perhaps we really need to have a system that is a a, a whole pile of interconnecting buses if we're going to make it work.
1: Well, I think, you know, our cities, in the long run, we should be looking, um, pretty much we should be depending on our legacy rail systems uh, rather than trying to build new ones. I mean, there will be the occasional new one, Melbourne Metro, Brisbane's Crossrail, because they're running out of capacity in the CBD. And I think Sydney, likewise, what's it called? The Metro, isn't it? The, the Northwest Metro, yes. or the one that's going to come all the way down to Bankstown. Likewise, I, I, as I understand, there's a problem with CBD rail capacity. So you do need some new rail lines, but, you, you know, the idea of retrofitting um, what would in fact have to be tunnels in the in the densest parts of the cities, the cost is just um, stratospheric. Uh, Melbourne Metro, it's only in a nine-kilometre tunnel. That's costing $11 billion. So, look, we've got to be thinking otherwise. So, I'll uh, be interested to make we're pretty well stuck with our legacy rail systems. We're very lucky to have them, and we should be thinking about building some sort of grid using essentially buses, you know, running an orbital pattern so that you can, just like you do in Paris, you can sort of go anywhere to anywhere as long as you are prepared to interchange. That's just a necessity. That's what you have to do in Paris and that's what we're going to have to do. And um, then we have the whole problem, well, if you're going to have buses and maybe on some high-capacity, super-busy roads or corridors, it might be light rail, but if it's going to be road, then you've got a, the whole problem of um, it getting caught up in traffic and how do you... How do you get a priority and how do you negotiate and deal with motorists? So it's not going to be easy.
0: No, indeed it's not. Now, in, in fact, there's uh, that lovely... But, oh, by the way, the the system in Sydney where they put in the Northwest Rail, they've called it a metro when in fact it's really just a radial road and a radial railway line, and in fact yep. they're going to call it a metro, so they're going to reduce the number of seats and have a lot more people standing, which is fine if you're doing a short little trip. But this is a rather long commute. I'm, I'm I think calling your point, calling it a metro doesn't make it a metro.
1: No, that's like well, we're talking about the Melbourne Metro, which is only you know nine kilometres. It only goes four kilometres on either side of the C P D, really, and it's called the Melbourne Metro, but Look, it's got some, that's all marketing, of course, it's got some, what you might call metro-like characteristics, um, like it, it doesn't share its railway along with any other services, which is one of the elements of a metro. Um, they're talking about having reasonably frequent services, say one every 10 minutes. It's not Paris' two minutes or one minute, but it's, you know, it's, it's a lot better than their standard old 20 minutes. And, and they're reducing the number of seats, so there'll be more standing room because it's only a really short journey. So, But I think really a metro has got to be a whole system, it's a whole network, where you can live quite comfortably without a car because you can go from anywhere to anywhere and all you've got to do at each end of your journey is have a pretty quick walk to your nearest station and a pretty quick walk at the other end.
0: There's so much we could, we could talk about, I'd love to, but, but maybe just touch uh, on that. We talked about a railway line to the airport and that might represent quite a, an amount of demand, yet itself is a super expensive thing to build. Now, to Tullamarine, they've proposed a railway line, $3 billion, so probably like any major project, road or whatever, will end up costing more. Is that the only solution that we, we should be looking at?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, most airport railway lines, I mean, Jared Walker from Human Transit, I've seen him make this point too. I mean, most of them are built as vanity projects. You know, you have a, a major event like an Olympic Games or whatever it might be and politicians jump out there and say, we've got to build a railway line. I mean, that's how Sydney got its one and um, pretty soon it collapsed, if you recall, and um, had to go into receivership. It's making money now, but that's be because the new owners picked it up for an absolute bargain price. I think it was about $300 million, And That is the bargain of the... Of the century probably. But take 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 Melbourne where there's a huge almost um, almost civic embarrassment on the parts of many people that their city doesn't have an airport rail line, but they love using them when they go to, you know, all the other countries. But the problem is it's already Melbourne already has a bus service and it's absolutely fantastic bus service. It's got on a ten minute frequency. It operates twenty four hours a day, and it's on that ten minute frequency from about um 6 a.m. right through to about 11 p.m. and then it drops back to about 20-minute frequencies. And I think between, you know, like 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. it might drop down to an hourly frequency. But it's a terrific service. So 20 minutes off peak between the CBD and um, the airport, which is probably comparable to journeys I've made on Sydney's airport train, even though it's a lot further out. In the peak, it's more like 40 minutes, but there's scope for a much lower price than building a new railway line. To give it a dedicated lane on the freeway and a, and a, you know a few titivations of traffic priority at a much lower cost. It's just I think it's just one of those cases we were talking about from the outset where um, people get fixated on a particular mode, and they're fixated on rail because rail, well, rail basically is more comfortable than than buses. I, I would never dispute that. I find trains more spacious, smoother. But it's really a matter of how much I, um, you're prepared to spend or need to spend, it's not as if there aren't other things, uh, like, for example, in outer suburbs, where um, you know there's not as if there aren't a lot of other pressing demands for um, public transport expenditure.
0: I think that money that you lose for other opportunities is a great point. Uh, not the least of which you could build or you could improve the bus system. Where you get on it at Melbourne, I know many people use it and love this bus system, but it's a bit dingy in that. You could make a nice transit lounge. Don't call it a bus depot, call it a transit lounge. <laughs> make it a bit better, and you could really improve it and improve that image and have heaps of money left over for other areas. Indeed. In fact, you talked about those other areas. Sometimes I think we've, you know, the people that are into density is our destiny have often assumed that the suburbs are those evil things, the spread of the city. But your point is they're there, and we can't just define them as being bad and ignore them. They are a fundamental and major part of the city activity. Oh, look, absolutely.
1: And look, they're going to have to change because um, our inner cities don't have all that much potential for um, increasing density. There is in the CBD, in, in, in Melbourne CBDs had an enormous increase in um, as density as you know that, where residential towers, big d- debate about that I don't believe Sydney I think for plan- reasons of planning restrictions um, has had quite the same degree of building activity as uh, Melbourne's had but then when you go out to that first kilometres, which is what we usually refer to as the um, inner city very hard to build because there's so much historic housing um, you know terraces and that, and then, and residents just won't allow that stuff to be redeveloped, and I don't think I'd want it to be redeveloped. So, the next ring out, you're getting to the, you're starting to get out to the middle ring suburbs, and you're getting out ten, more twenty, thirty kilometres even, and I think that's where a lot of people want to live. They can't afford the uh, inner city because it's just stratospherically expensive. So, they're the areas where we've got to be looking for more. Um,
0: more redevelopment.
1: We've got to be. I think. I believe we've got to be looking for more density out there, out in those middle ring suburbs, and it's very hard to do because again, existing homeowners, no one's particularly keen on having, uh, you know, blocks of units next door.
0: It's interesting. I grew, grew up in an area about twenty, twenty-five kilometres from the city centre, which was the outer suburbs when I was young. Now it's a sort of middle suburb and it's getting heaps and heaps of uh, units. Alan, this is just lovely. I enjoy it immensely, but I I must uh, not take any more of your time. uh, But I'd love to keep in contact. Thank you very much for all your writings, uh, which I enjoy immensely.
1: I appreciate it and enjoyed it immensely, David. Nice to talk to you again.
0: And that's Alan Davies, whom you can go and listen or read his material by going to crikey.com.au and look for the section called The Urbanist. He's uh, really, as I say, some lovely balanced views which uh, need to be considered as we move to the reality of the future, not just our dreams.